Hey everyone, it's David Warrench again. Welcome again to the Authentic Dad Podcast. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're safe, well, and healthy. This is a podcast for fathers to inspire them to flourish in their relationships, to be connected to themselves, to their partners, to their children, to reach their goals. Today is a really important conversation. I interview Ira Abrams. He is a psychologist and he specializes in sex addiction and porn addiction. We have a really good conversation about that, but we also talk about how to talk to your children about porn addiction or pornography because it's obviously very prevalent on the internet, just a click of a button, and I wanted to get his insight and feedback on that. So please do tune in. Um, Bear with the sound on this one. Not sure what happened. Um, but you might have to turn up the volume a little bit. But I assure you the content is really, really good. Um, reach me, further, underscore coach, uh, further dot coach, rather. Further, F-U-R-T-H-U-R dot coach is my website. I'm on TikTok, further coaching, Instagram, further underscore coaching. Please consider subscribing and giving us a five-star review. Uh, just a note, this has some sensitive topics, so if you're in public or in an office or around children, maybe listen to it on the headphones. It's not vulgar, of course, but it is talking about some adult topics on this one, and we shall see you on the other side. Okay, I'm here with Ira Abrams, Dr. Ira Abrams. He is a practicing psychologist for 25 years. He specializes in sexual addiction and he does couples therapy, group psychotherapy. He is actually a certified sexual addiction therapist. He studied under Patrick Carnes. And man, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Dr. Abrams. Thank you. I'm glad to be here today. What's a certified sexual addiction therapist? Um, that's a certification that I did training under Dr. Carnes. It was a whole program over a couple of years of learning um supervision and working with cases to kind of get his model. And Patrick Lawrence is sort of a Sigmund Freud of sex addiction. He's the one who coined the term. And it's, it was an honor to work with him and know him. He's in his late 70s now, or maybe even 80s, and really slowing down. So it was a real wonderful opportunity to do that over the last 15 years or so. So, so that term, as kind of people know it in, in the media, sexual addiction, he sort of coined that. Is that Yes, fair to say. Yep. With his own story and the certification of the certified sexual addiction therapist, we call it being a CSAT. Mm-hmm. And there's an organization of us together, the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. And there's a few thousand of us now, and it's international over the, over the world. The most are here in the US and Canada, but it's a wonderful group, and we do a lot of cross-pollination of research and sharing resources and such. And is it fair to put pornography addiction and sex addiction in in the same category? Yeah, porn addiction is sort of a subcategory of the larger um, diagnosis of sex addiction. And we use the metaphor that sort of porn addiction is sort of the crack cocaine Mm of sex addiction, meaning most using drugs as a metaphor, most drug addicts have a long history of starting with A, moving to B, moving to C, but crack was a new thing that people could just start with crack and become an addict very quickly. And Mm -hmm. people who normally wouldn't become a drug addict with crack can become that way. 
with porn, with porn, it's similar that porn is sort of the fast track into this. And a lot of people who never would have fallen into this because of the ease availability of pornography, it pulls in a lot of people into it. We talk about the three A's that pornography is available, affordable, and it appears to be anonymous, but right. a lot of times people find out it's not. We definitely want to talk about that, but I want to go back a little bit because you've been practicing for 25 years. There's probably all sorts of areas you could specialize in. Just give me a little bit of how you landed on sex addiction because this is a really sensitive, powerful, difficult topic. Yes. That, uh, um, not everybody would want to delve into. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was a couples therapist for many, many years. And I think I had, in hindsight, I had men with this disorder in my office and I really missed it. And there was one particular case, must have been around the late 90s, where I worked with somebody for a while, a woman did very good work. And after a couple of years, she said, can I come in with my husband? And we started doing some couples work, the three of us, and he never really settled in. We maybe did three or four sessions to stop. And then a few months later, she called me up and said that she got on his computer and found all sorts of pornography and mm -hmm. prostitution sites and such. And um, you know, it was a big crisis. The three of us sat down, we did some things. I ended up hospitalizing him for this. Wow. But it really bothered me that he was in my office and I missed it. So I started reading about sexual addiction and the name Patrick Carnes, Patrick Carnes, Patrick Carnes kept coming up in all the literature and research. And I Googled him and he was doing a training the following month in Florida. And I signed up for it, went down for it. And I didn't even realize it was the first step in that CSAT training process. And everyone was saying to me, oh, you're going to pursue your CSAT, everyone at the conference. And I was like, well, I'm just here. I'll see, you know, if it engages me, I'll stick with it as long as it makes sense. And I really found the community there. And I found that it's a very active therapy, which I liked. And there were a lot of hurting people out there. And this a little getting in the weeds, the last training session Patrick did, we started at the very end after a couple of years, we were just talking about marketing and things along those lines. And I kind of raised my hand and said, you know, Patrick, I've been a psychologist for 20 years. I don't want to just see sex addiction. And I'm scared if I have it on my website, it will scare people off, non-sex addicts. Mm -hmm. And he said, that will happen. You'll, and you'll end up in a few years working only with sex addiction and that's fine. And I kind of listened to him politely and said to myself, no way, I don't want that. But once again, he was right. <laughs> That's what happened. And it's fine. So now most of my work is sex addiction with addicts, their partners, um, in couples, groups, individuals. And it really has taken over my practice. And there's a very deep hidden need for this that a lot of people are out there needing this work. And I can tell you, most people who call me, they call me up and say, hi, I'm a sex addict. I need wow. help. I'm not diagnosing most people out of the blue. They know it. They've worked with other therapists who didn't know what to do with it, and they've made their way to me. No, no, it's really interesting. So you didn't really set out and say, I want to be a sex addiction therapist. This is something that you noticed that was coming up, and you're like, what is this? Why am I missing this? And kind of happened upon it, and now, you know, and, and 20 years in, even, yeah. 
now you're saying this is all I do and people are coming to you and they're saying, I know I am and I need help. Yeah, definitely. Probably important to define what that is, right? Like, so what, how would you, I know it's kind of a big question. Yeah. How would, how would, how would you define? Cause, and we'll get into like, I think it's a little controversial it is. still. Um, how would you define it? Sex well, addiction. Sex addiction is, you can define it just like any addiction. If you took the addiction to alcoholic and took the word alcohol out and put the word mm -hmm. sexual stimuli in, it's the same exact diagnosis. It has to do with a few factors, things such as desire to stop and not able to, so unsuccessful efforts to stop, um, compulsive use, which is using it for a longer period of time than you intended or when you should be doing other things. The third thing, element is escalation. People start off with A and end up with B and C and D, the same way most alcoholics end up drinking more and harder alcohol. And um, compared to other, and this, this is a little controversial, but the um, other, the classic definition of addiction has to do with withdrawal symptoms. And uh -huh. the, we talk about substance addictions like alcohol and drugs and process addictions like gambling and sex addiction. And some of the controversy is that people have a wrong notion about when someone says they're an addict about responsibility. People think, oh, this is just bad behavior. And someone's just saying, I'm an addict, i.e. I'm not responsible. It's more the opposite. Um, as a metaphor, I remember years ago, I used to work with kids and a kid said to me, I have a reading disorder. Don't expect me to read. And I said to him, sorry, dude, reading came natural to me and most of us. You have to work twice as hard at reading than the average person. And so when someone's an addict, it means they have to put twice the energy into it. They're twice as responsible. And the powerlessness notion, people have a truncated sentence. They think that the sentence is, I am a sex addict. I am not responsible for what I do. The real statement should be, I am a sex addict. And I, or, I'm sorry, I'm, I should be using a different word, powerless. That's the word that people react to. So people think it is, I'm an addict, so therefore I'm powerless to stop. The real sentence is, I'm an addict, I am powerless to stop on my own. I need the help of professionals and support groups to get through this. That's the key to it. Yeah, I mean, what comes up for me, of course, when you say that is the classic stuff you see in the media, Tiger Woods, for example, and I, I don't know whether he is or not, but going into treatment and people saying, ah, this isn't a real thing. Mm -hmm. He's hiding behind bad behavior. He made poor decisions and therefore saying, oh, I have a disease. And I think perhaps that's maybe partly where that comes from. And you're, you're saying, no, this is, because, you know, as you know, there's some people think this isn't a real thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. same way if I said I am a diabetic, mm -hmm. that means I'm responsible to be really mindful of everything I eat because it's super important to me because I have this disorder, diabetes. It's the same thing of I'm an alcoholic. It's pretty natural for most of us to have champagne on New Year's Eve. If I'm an alcoholic, I cannot do that. And if I'm a sex addict, 
I have to own that, take responsibility for that and change the way I live. And also, as I understand it, it isn't like something that Patrick Carnes or people studying this made up. They're actually scientific evidence. There's research. You want to just well, get, the a couple, couple of the research science behind it. Um, I don't want to go too much into that, but yeah, there's I the best thing I could do, I could go on for hours about it, is let me give mention some resources. I have a colleague who has a website called the Great Corn Experiment. Oh. And that's his metaphor of what happens when there's free, unlimited corn everywhere. And the experiment is we're the guinea pigs. That's our society now. What's the effect of it? But um, I could just tell you that Patrick Collins is right now in Canada working on a Fulbright, looking at the biological basis through genes of sex addiction. And his findings are just three quarters of the way of being analyzed, should be out in the next couple of years. But that's the final piece of showing the biological elements of it. Um, the controversy around the diagnosis, let me give a little background on that. The mental disorder diagnosis are in a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's right now in its fifth edition. When that fifth edition came out two years ago, sex addiction was looked at, studied to be included or not, and they decided not to include it. And it wasn't that the data didn't support it, it was a political concern that pedophiles and other rapists would use that as an alibi saying, I'm not responsible, I have this disorder. Mm -hmm. And they did not know how to work that out and figure it out. Interesting. But taking the larger picture, the DSM is considered as a subcategory of the mental disorders in a larger di diagnostic book called the ICD, the International Classification of Disorders, which is in its 11th edition. When it moved from 10 to 11, they included compulsive sexual um, use disorder. So that will be in the ICD-11, which is coming out now, and usually the DSM follows that. So the DSM-6 will most likely have it included. And I would imagine somebody who calls you up doesn't really give a crap about any of that, right? They're saying, yeah. Yeah. I want to stop. Yeah. I can't. Maybe it started one thing, pornography, and it's escalated. Yeah. Maybe they've been able to stop for a little bit and can't, and it's having a massively negative impact on their life. So that, And they call you and they say, hey, I have a problem here. So what's what's next? Like, yeah, how do you let me say one other thing about that? That people who are non-sex addicts, they kind of joke. I some people hear about the work I do. I hear this from other psychologists. They said, "Oh, that's the addiction I want." Ha ha ha. Uh -huh. And I always say to them, when I say alcoholic, you don't picture a guy with a martini glass all happy. You picture right. a guy on the side of the road sucking a bottle out of a bag with a three-day beard. I said, "This is the sex version of this. There is some." pleasure in it but a lot of it is compulsive and you know when i say sex addict most people wrongly think of like sex fiend right someone's out of control most of my clients are good husbands church members uh, neighbors and they're good husbands in every way except for this they have this dark side that's hidden that they hate that they can't get under control and it's sort of this anomaly in their life. Yeah, and it also seems like, 
I don't want to say it's socially acceptable, but being an alcoholic is something that everybody is familiar with. And, oh, we can, we can understand that and get on board with that. And you say you're a sex addict. Yeah. That seems to be one that is not, um, let's yeah, say, my, celebrated. Clients who have to go for inpatient treatment for people who are severely out of control and can't stop. It's a wonderful treatment intervention that people go for 30, 45 days where, you know, most therapy sessions, you gradually open up, but by the end of an hour, you have to close back up again and go back to being a husband, a worker and all that. When you go to an inpatient facility, you can just stay there and put work aside, family aside, and go deeper and deeper and deeper and get to the roots of this. And when I have clients who are going inpatient, almost always I'll write a letter to the HR department of their work saying addiction treatment. And most employers assume alcohol and right. say, fine, you know, that's good enough. What, um, so what, how do you help someone who comes in and they're just having a problem? Well, I want to know the impact it has on their relationship, but I also want to know like someone listening to this thinks they have a problem. Like what's the first step? What do they do? What does the therapy look like when they come to you? Sure. Well, I think you definitely need this. This is a little self-serving, but I believe that the training I have is I know things the average therapist doesn't. Like in my field, if someone came to me with anorexia, my first thought would be, you need to see an eating disorder specialist. Right. And I think it's the same with this, that you should go to somebody who's trained and has experience in working with this. So the first thing we do is sort of... Um, clarify the diagnosis and part of the CSAT world is we have a empirical evaluation that's in its fourth edition that's been validated on thousands of addicts and it gives a diet it clarifies the diagnosis tells us which way it's manifesting is this person ready to change how how comfortable are they in intimate relationships what consequences they have so that's where I start always with that so you're actually getting data from yeah. like a diagnostic tool. This isn't, this isn't yeah. guesswork. Exactly. Exactly. And then when the treatment starts, what's hard is most people who come to me, they need to deal with the diagnosis, deal with the addiction first. My model is that sex addiction is a failed solution. Interesting. They tried to resolve something in their life by going to this and initially it helped. But then it became a problem. I'll give you another alcohol metaphor. Let's say there's a young person who's socially awkward and has social anxiety. If they drink a couple of beers and say, this is great. I can talk to girls. I can dance. I'm going to drink all the time. Pretty soon down the road, the alcohol is less effective for the awkwardness and anxiety. And you might have an alcohol problem on top of the social anxiety. So most sex addicts have an initial problem that they went to this to soothe themselves or to escape their problems. And now down the road, they have the sex addiction on top of the initial problem. So my treatment is you have to get the behavior under control and the addiction under control first. And once you do, and I can tell you how we do that, then you have to deal with some of what the deeper problems are through more traditional therapy. Yeah, like behavior oftentimes or maybe all times is the symptom of this thing underlying but you can't i guess deal with the underlying issue before you get the symptom under control i love that you said that this was a solution because i did some 
IFS, internal family systems, and look at all these parts, and these parts are there, even if they're extreme and causing you trouble in your life, they are there to help you. It's not a good solution, but they are doing something for you, protect you, numb you, make you feel better, try to help you deal with whatever you're dealing with. It might be destroying you, but in some ways it it's, as you said, a solution, which I find really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people look at an addict and they say that that that's a bad person. Yeah, that's the basis of much of therapy of addictions and of anxiety disorders. I mean, think of another metaphor: if you send a soldier, a young man, to or woman to Afghanistan, and they learn if you hear a noise behind you, turn around and fight to the death, and that saves them and keeps them alive. And they say, "Very good, you've succeeded. Go back home to Philadelphia." and your friend taps you on the shoulder, or someone drops a garbage can cover behind you. The same behavior it helps you in one setting is a hindrance in another. And I'm imagining the behaviors that you're seeing or the people that come into your office kind of run the gamut. So there's- well, the acting out behavior, I'm never, I, I say to myself occasionally, wow, I never heard of that in all these years. He's always new, but, getting into the weeds a little bit of what sexual addiction is, we use the jargon that it's an intimacy disorder. These are people who can be sexual in all sorts of creative ways, but have trouble with intimacy, with being vulnerable, present, connected. That's the hard part. That's the part they need to work on. And I know we're talking in general generalities, but if somebody's listening and, and they have this problem, and let's say their partner doesn't know about this problem. And like, how do you handle that situation? When is it appropriate to disclose or when is it appropriate to hold off and maybe see a professional? That, that seems like really tricky, right? Because you don't want to hide anymore. But at the same time, you also want to have some treatment and that could be really messy if you if you just start blurting things people out. People who come to me have been caught in little ways or dramatic ways. I have some people come to me right after they're in the Washington Post to be arrested, or right after the FBI, um, you know, kicks their door in because they've been looking at child pornography. And our society is very funny about that. That you can look at thousands and thousands of hours of 19-year-olds, but look at 16-year-olds, you're a felon. And so some people come in that way. A lot of people, when they come to me, they've just been busted again by their partner for the fifth time, and they can't deny it anymore to themselves or their partner. And they realize they don't want to be doing this, but they can't stop. And so it's some, some ways that the, the, the backpack or the guilt or the, the, it's just too heavy to, to bear anymore. Yes. And the internet, unfortunately, has evolved into, it used to be a more static thing. I think a lot of women think the internet is sort of playboy photos uh, digitized. The internet is a very interactive place now. And, you know, if you're in Silver Spring, you get pop-ups of prostitutes in Silver Spring offering themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, and there's a lot of peer-to-peer, -peer. everyone's laptop has a camera on it, so it's not just you know, professional porn stars, it's people um, sharing with each other. And so that is already crossing a lot of lines. So people can go quickly or gradually 
from looking at pictures to engaging with other people and then it's just one more step to having an open affair. I would imagine that was a lot easier before the pandemic. So what has it been like for you as a practitioner or clients coming to you when you person is living with their partner, living at home 24-7? Are they relapsing? Is it less relapse? Is it a mess? Yeah, it's very interesting because when the pandemic first started, I got worried and said, oh my gosh, all my clients are going to be doing everything online, work, socializing, we're all going to relapse because porn is sort of the common, you know, everyone has porn and then other, many people have additional stuff the porn led to. But to my surprise, and I've talked to other colleagues about this, they found the same thing, that with the pandemic, people have not realized they're doing better. And I think what's happened, the way I make sense of it is, most of my clients are decent partners, good fathers, and they're decent partners when they're with their partners. They're not bullies, they're not chasing her around the house for sex. Most of my clients are not very good at initiating sex. And one way they avoid that vulnerability is to go do pornography where that's, and masturbating, that's not as good as sex with their partners, but it's easier, less vulnerable. So with the pandemic, what I'm finding is people are spending a lot of times with their partners and they're getting closer and more connected. You know, most of my clients, it's sort of like when they're not with their partner, they forgot their partner exists or they forgot they're in a partnership. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, what happens if Vegas stays in Vegas? And I say, no, what happens if Vegas comes home and if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, it's still made a really big noise. Yeah, it's like this pandemic kind of backs, not just with sex, backs people into a corner. You, you can't hide. You're, you're, you have to look at each other. You have to talk. You have to That's face your problems. I've seen that with friends and family where if they were avoiding something in their life or sort of, keeping busy with work now they're like oh i have to actually think about this stuff that i that i haven't thought about yes um shifting gears because this podcast is um for fathers and i'm curious about because i'm a father i have a nine-year-old and 11 year old and of course they're getting to the age that my son is already at that age where and i have we have to really start having conversations about this for kids because you mentioned what were the three a's again anonymous available affordability amount availability mm -hmm. and the appearance of anonymity so click of a button unless you have you know some really strict um, parental controls a kid can find this stuff so easily so what do you suggest for parents listening to how do, how do you talk to your kids about this sure I, I'm really glad you bring that up because that's very, very important. I would say to you that parents have to actively work to keep this away. It's not just that kids can access it. There's all these stories of when the movie um, Little Women came out. Mm -hmm. You know, 12-year-old girls put Little Women in Google and they got <laughs> pictures of short women, you know. And so it's not just that kids can seek it. They almost have to fight it off. And I do believe that it's a parent's responsibility to protect their kids from this because it is overwhelming. The research shows the average age of first exposure is eight or nine years old. This is overwhelming. 
And even when I was a kid, you can get your hands on a Playboy as a teenager, but this is high definition streaming data and our brains cannot tell the difference between that and reality. Right. And go further that, you know, I'm now just turned 60. I remember the day when internet came home. You got higher speed internet after the dial-up. The younger generation now, this is all they know. So they're used to experiencing life on the computer. And for most kids, this is their sexual educator. This mm -hmm. is where they're learning. You know, I always say I have a dog at home. My dog will never be in National Geographic or dog fancy. It's just a regular dog. Same with pornography. That's not, you know, the people in pornography, that's not how regular women act. And I'll be graphic for a moment. I had a young person once say to me, you know, I've had sex once or twice, but I'm not very good at it. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, well, she wasn't screaming in ecstasy. And mm -hmm. he didn't say it, but I think he right. was lying like they do in the movies on pornography. And another kid said, I'm embarrassed to be with a girl because I have a small penis. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, like, oh, let's talk about it. And he ended up saying, well, it was like five or six inches long. And I said, the people in the internet are freaks. That's why they're there. You know, that's, that's not how normal people act. That's not, not what normal people look like. Right. And so it's interesting. So if that person grows up and let's say they don't become a porn or sex addict, they still have this sort of distorted, unhealthy view Yep. And that is their first education, right? It's not like they're going to... One other thing that's really important is the internet is not a static thing. It's a very misogynistic, violent... It's not about lovemaking. It's about male gratification. Mm -hmm. And men who are gratifying themselves on the internet usually have not been as successful as they'd like with real women. And there's a level of resentment and I think overt anti-woman misogyny there that if you i call the swamp if you swim in that swamp for hours each day or even shorter time each day that becomes your normal and these young women who are who are experiencing horrible things by men because they think that's what you should do and that's what you that women like in terms of choking in terms of slapping and i can go on and on well, besides keeping children away from this stuff, let's say you're successful at, at doing that, how then do you have those healthy conversations? Yep. So they have the foundation, like do you have any resources or suggestions of how that works? And, yeah, and the one thing I should suggest is that I, don't, I say parents should not have the sex talk, the birds and bees talk. They should have a hundred little talks. Great. And that gives the message that we can talk about this. It's a part of life. Because the message I got growing up and a lot of people got growing up was this, you know, I, I am a teenage boy with all these hormones, but it's something no one talks about. So I guess it's something I need to be doing in the dark and private and secretive, right. not out there. And so I encourage parents to have tons of talks with kids. And a couple of suggestions is the car is a great place because you don't have to look at them in the face, they don't have to look at you. And I, I'm dating myself, but I remember carpooling with my daughter when Britney Spears was kind of going from being um, a Disney star to trying to be a more mainstream, and she was showing up 
you know, on TV and in the media in bikini tops with yep. snakes. Around. And I remember just saying to my daughter, what do you think of that? It's kind of weird, isn't it? What do you think? Mm -hmm. And so we would start dialogues about that stuff. So that's what I encourage parents to do a lot of. I love that. It's not this one one and done big talk. It's it's making it a part of the fabric of the family. Yep. Healthy. One of the things that most sex addicts have in common is the family never spoke about sex or it was sex negative. And sometimes mm -hmm. that has a religious connotation and kind of sets people up for hiding this and putting it in the dark. This is a split off thing, not, not a part of life. What I would want a message to give the kids is sex is a wonderful thing. It's one of the greatest things in life. Wonderful thing to share with a partner, but you can make it nothing. You can make it something just to make Friday night fun. Then it's nothing. You know, if you can take a beautiful Persian rug and wipe your feet on it and make that beautiful thing into garbage, you mm -hmm. do the same thing with sex and just make it meaningless by throwing it around. You should cherish it and keep it something wonderful. And, and we're fighting against, I'd say we as parents, so many messages that are, as you said, making it nothing. Yep. And, and the kids are hearing it from the media. Go, 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 do everything. They're hearing it from friends in the locker rooms, you know, that stereotype. So they need to hear it from their parents as well, the counterbalancing message. Not anti-sex, but valuing it. Mm -hmm. Nurturing the wonderful thing you can share with someone you love, or if that's your value, someone you're married to. So I have a couple more questions. One is for someone listening to this, and they say, you know, I don't think I'm a sex addict, but I watch porn occasionally and it's fine and I don't have a problem and it's not impacting my life and what's the big deal? And maybe my partner even knows and is okay with it. Do you believe there is a healthy place for it in some people's lives or are you of the opinion that it's no go? It's, no, that's well, a, hard it's a tough question for me because I used to come from a more liberal place of it's fine but I've seen so much damage done and I've used a lot of alcohol metaphors. Mm -hmm. You know, I drink a little bit. I will probably have a beer or two this weekend, but mm -hmm. I'll never be an alcoholic. I'm not right. accepted. And I'm sure there are people that way of pornography, but from the seat I'm in, I've seen so much damage and yep. it's so ugly what's in the porn world. Again, it's not loving couples. It's this misogynistic men taking from women. Mm -hmm. I just think it's an ugly, bad thing. Right. And I often say to men who ask me that, I say, well, if it's nothing bad about it, why do you keep it secret? Why don't you mention to your wife, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I'll be there a little bit. I'm going to go turn on some porn. I'll be, I'll be down in a half hour. Uh -huh. I think you keep it secret because a part of you knows it's not right. the best of you and for you. That, that's a really cool answer. I got so yeah right so if you're hiding it what what's so good about that like why why isn't out why is not this not out in the open why aren't you watching it with your spouse yeah it's funny because i was a few years ago i was on an airplane remember we used to fly airplanes yeah and the guy sitting a couple of rows ahead of me diagonally reading maxim magazine with a wife or girlfriend uh -huh. so i remember first saying to myself "Ooh, that's kind of gross and then i kind of said well you know what He's not a sex addict. Sex addicts hide it. Sex addicts mm -hmm. are really good on the outside and rotten on the inside. 
this guy is an honest man. This is who I am. I like looking at scantily clad women flaunting themselves. Yeah. And I kind of changed my opinion of that. Right. So this guy was really owning that. And he was on an airplane with his partner. And that's a different situation than somebody who's working late or missing work and has this secret life. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, thank you so much. Do you have any dad jokes? I know. <laughs> dad jokes. Um, <laughs> God, I could talk for hours about sex addiction. Um, yeah, I, I put you on the spot. These corny jokes? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's a dad podcast. Um, how about, I got one. Um, two cannibals are, um, they're eating a clown, and one says to the other, does this taste funny? That's a good one. That's not bad. That's not bad. I like that. Um, oh, I, you, and you're a dad too. How many kids do you have and, and what are their ages? Just just for context. Three kids. Mm -hmm. My oldest son is 32 and lives in Manhattan, got married New Year's Eve. My daughter is 28. She just moved to Boston and she's getting married on Labor Day weekend two weeks from now. Wow. I'm excited about that. And I have a younger son who um, is 24 and just finished a clerkship in El Paso and he moved to Richmond doing an appellate courtship, clerkship. Oh, wow. To have him closer. Gosh, he should have called me before he got into that. Yeah. What, um, any grandkids yet? Nope, we've placed our orders, but there's been no delivery yet, but we're, we're awaiting, looking forward to it. Well, I really, really appreciate it. I think this is very, very useful. I think it's a conversation that is hard and that not everybody wants to have. So I hope people, dads, parents, listen to it. And where can people find you? If um, Are you seeing patients outside of, you're in the Washington, D.C. area, like because it's a pandemic, will you see someone, let's say, who hears this in New York? Um, it's complicated because the way the laws used to be is I'm licensed in Maryland, and if I'm doing it online and I'm in Maryland and you're in Chicago, I'm practicing in Illinois without a license. And they've suspended some of those laws temporarily mm. during the pandemic, but I think that's supposed to stop being in effect in September. Oh, that's so I'm trying to stick only with Maryland people. And um, being honest, as I mentioned, turning 60 and talk about grandkids, I'm trying to slow down my work and trying to save yeah. things a little bit. So I'm trying to take less clients and work less and sort of enjoy life a little bit more. And um, that's interesting. Yeah, it's like that with law. I, I can only practice in Maryland. Well, how about just uh, throwing out a resource like so with Patrick Carnes, any other books or authors you would recommend for people who want to know more yep. about there's that organization I mentioned I'm a part of called the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. Mm -hmm. We call it ITAP. Okay. I-I-T-A-P. I'll put that in the show notes. Yep. Dot com. They have a therapist finder tool where you can put in your zip code and it will let you know where C if there's CSATs in your area. Uh -huh. That's very helpful. I would say that's a great resource no matter what. That again for people, a certified sex addiction therapist. Yep. CSAT. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a, a good resource. Patrick Carnes' classic book is called Out of the Shadows. Mm -hmm. And another book that's very helpful is um, In the Doghouse. 
by uh -huh. someone called Rob Weiss. Okay. And that's written, he doesn't use the word sex addict because I think he wanted to market it to anybody who's been caught with infidelity. Because okay. non-sex addicts have affairs occasionally. Or sort of a playful title, but. Yep. And that's a helpful. And he also has a book called Sex Addiction 101. It's kind of the basics that can be helpful. Perfect. Well, this has been amazing. I really appreciate it. Congratulations. Congratulations to your daughter and um, Dr. Ira Abrams. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was fun. And that was my conversation with Dr. Ira Abrams. Dr. Abrams, thank you again so much for joining me. It was very insightful. And hopefully that gives a lot of value and insight to people who are struggling. And this is a really sensitive topic. So thank you again for doing that. And I think it's really important to have at least a framework on how to talk to our children about these issues. Thanks again. We would love your five-star reviews, your feedback. Um, email me. Further coach at gmail.com that's f-u-r-t-h-u-r coach at gmail.com this is david warrench and i hope to see you next time